0: Live from our studio, above a pool table, in a bar, and unbelievably with a mouthful of beeswax this week, I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, producing Chuck Mertz. Producing this live stream is Alex Jerry. And I apparently have to take this beeswax out of my mouth because that's not going to continue. Alex, did we get any feedback about this week's first ever regular weekday show at thisishell.com?
1: Uh, yeah, but have you got any feedback on your bespoke dental, uh, <laughs> <laughs> dental life hack? <laughs> it's disgusting. Can you, can you exp- explain to people what's going on? Is
0: sure, it- if you put down those two interrogation lights behind you just a little bit, that's <laughs> kind of blinding me in the eye. So, uh, super excited about the new weekday format. I always knew as soon as we went to this uh, weekday format, something horrible would happen to me. Yesterday, all of a sudden, I had this feeling in the back of my mouth. I didn't know what it was started abrading the side of my tongue which sounds really gross and so reached back in there had my girlie take a look apparently an impacted wisdom tooth in the back of my head is trying to come out but not come out through the top of my gum but the side, so I might be having emergency wisdom tooth surgery in the very near future. And I'm not really looking forward to it whatsoever because I know it is brutal.
1: On uh, the good news, uh, people really, really dug that uh, Corey Robin interview from uh, on the Enigma of Clarence Thomas that we did uh, last week. Christopher H. said uh, that was an interview that took my thoughts in directions that wouldn't have gone otherwise. Not only that, but it helps me to develop a better understanding of black conservatives' fetishization of the market in particular. Thank you. And then also Robert B said, this looks for explanations that mystify Thomas when it is clear he merely saw that selling out humanity to the fascist and treasonous movements subverting our constitutional republic could enrich him and vault him into the highest offices in the land, which is maybe a different uh, reading than what Corey had. <laughs> uh, that was a great conversation. It was one of my favorites, too. It was uh, Good job, Chuck. Yeah, it
0: was really fantastic last week. Go check. Out our interview last week with Corey Robin at ThisIsHell.com and I'm going to have something to say About the Republican, conservative Right-wing strategy Political strategy of Despair and futility On tomorrow's show so stay tuned in For that. Earlier this week on This Is Hell And available at ThisIsHell.com Right now we spoke with the New York Review Of Books award winning writer Madeline Schwartz About her investigation into how What she calls deportation courts Deprive immigrants Those who have already immigrated and live in the U.S. and refugees fleeing for their lives, seeking the sanctuary of asylum, deprive all of them of their rights, including due process and the right to face their accuser and insist that they waive all their rights before making any decision on if they will be allowed to enter or stay in the U.S., So it's welcome to the land of freedom, democracy, and liberty, but first, let's give you a huge dose of an undemocratic justice system run by the executive branch that will deny you your freedom and any liberty you hope to exercise as a citizen or resident of the U.S. Of course, that all makes sense in a nation like the United States that was founded upon contradiction upon contradiction, which will likely collapse in the house of cards fashion far sooner than any of us actually expect it will. This is hell, your eyewitness to grief, or at least the place where you can hear reports from eyewitnesses to grief, like... Madeline Schwartz, and her reporting earlier on this week's show on deportation courts. Coming up, we're going back to Ferguson this week. And instead of moving on from one of the most important mass uprisings against police in U.S. history, like the so-called news media has moved on to the next event they can sensationalize, force into a narrative of futility and despair that lacks any solution, which ends up normalizing racist institutions like the police, which emerge from the long legacy of slavery in the U.S., In a few moments, we'll talk to criminal justice scholar Andrea S. Boyles, author of You Can't Stop the Revolution, Community Disorder and Social Ties in Post-Ferguson America. Andrea is associate professor of criminal justice at Lindenwood University, which is about 20 minutes from Ferguson. Follow the hashtag for Andrea's book, You Can't Stop the Revolution. And we'll discuss a subject that is often denied the coverage It truly deserves, and that is abortion. We'll get caught up on the fight for a woman's right to do whatever the hell she wants when we speak with writer, teacher, and organizer with the feminist group National Women's Liberation, Jenny Brown, author of a new book, Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now. Jenny was a leader in the fight to get the morning-after pill over the counter in the U.S. and a plaintiff in the winning lawsuit. Learn all about National Women's Liberation by following at the number 4 Women's Lib on Twitter, or going to their website, womensliberation.org. Then, if you think Scandinavia is the be-all and end-all in all things green, get ready to have your bubble burst because Norway is a leading contributor to climate change. We'll learn how evil goody-two-shoes Norway really is when we hear from a doctoral research fellow of history at the University of Oslo, Henrik Olav Matheson, a MythBuster who wrote the Dark Mountain Project story Cowboy Nation, Norway's Wild West Fantasy. The longer subtitle states Equinor, Norway's state-owned oil and gas company, is riding headlong into the world's fossil-fueled sunset whilst its cowboy nation is trotting comfortably along in its trail. And you can find that article at dark-mountain.net. And we'll end this week's show the way we do most weeks' show. And that's the moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. We'll tell you more about that later. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell, and I have been staring into the abyss of the bottomless and soulless chasm of capitalism lately, at least when it comes to the marketing and merchandising ...of our show, This Is Hell, which is always a difficult and very sensitive topic for us to consider... ...as we are a show whose guests and stupid hosts are clearly very anti-capitalist... ...that they have a critique of capitalism and, as you know, conservatives in the right... ...dictate the limits and parameters of our public debate, dialogue, and discussion... ...so because the show and its dumb hosts have any criticism of capitalism whatsoever... If we hold the political economic system that dominates every moment of our lives accountable or responsible for the circumstances of our lives, for anything that happens in our lives, then we're clearly anti-capitalist. Being someone who hosts a show that has that ideological bent to it, the willingness to actually consider and examine the forces that control our lives, I know, go figure, it makes things really difficult when you're trying to, well make money in a capitalist system, because I need money to buy food, to eat, to get clothes so I'm not arrested for public nudity, and a roof over my head so I'm not arrested for being homeless, or worse, killed for being homeless, which seems to be something that's happening far too much here in the U.S. today. Yes, I personally and unfortunately need money, or I will die. Unless we can figure out a way for me to get everything I need without using money, because I'm totally down with that. And in fact, I'm hoping that's what we can all do in the not too far off future, eliminate the need for money, which leads to the question, what kind of marketing and merchandising would not only be successful within the market, but also not undermine whatever anti-capitalist bona fides we may claim to have? I mean why even worry really there's there's plenty of these lefty radio shows podcasts media outlets of all sorts and they don't seem to mind contradicting their anti-waste anti-hyperconsumerism anti-capitalist complicity principles in order to make a crap ton of money and we don't want or need a crap ton of anything especially something as crappy as money which is a nasty habit of turning humans into evil Pricks. Unfortunately, more than anything, that's exactly what I do about everything all the time worry. I'm what's known as a worry wart, and no, I'm not going to look up where that comes from because I'm betting it's either disgusting or racist we're both. Worrying about how we market and merchandise without being an anti-capitalist hy- hypocrite has been consuming me of late, hyper-consuming me, if you will. And you shouldn't because that's a horrible pun. It's not so bad. and I wouldn't even call that a pun. And that has been consuming my, and what has been consuming my soul is how to make money when we are supposed, we are opposed to the very concept of money, let alone everything that spirals off of money from economics to politics to justice to everything that money corrupts. That's when it hit me, our audience, for no reason of our own, I'm certain, is filled with activists and the kinds of people who go to protest or organize others in ways that challenge the status quo and the machine that grinds us all into something barely above dust. For those who are in the simmering background just waiting for the revolution to happen, our show or This Is Hell should provide them with something that is useful in their uprising against the man and woman. Let's just say against whiteness, because even whitey's sick of whiteness. You'll never hear white people admit it, but as a white person, I can tell you, being white is really uptight and erotic when it's not being unbelievably boring. What can we offer to our audience here on This Is held that they could actually use in the upcoming uprising? Well, we certainly can't offer This Is Hell barricades, although they would be handy. The problem is postage and packaging. You know, it's got to be expensive to send wooden pallets refashioned into walls, and I really don't know how we would get the This Is Hell logo on them, and what's the point when you know the cops will eventually destroy them or the revolutionaries will set them on fire? What else could protesters use? That's when I saw a picture from the protests in Hong Kong, and I realized... What merchandising we can do that will market to the anti-consumerist, anti-capitalist crowd. Not that those protesting in Hong Kong are necessarily either, but they are protesters and all protesters use the same gear when confronting the state, no matter what their politics happen to be. And what I saw the protesters wearing were surgical masks to protect them from tear gas. And suddenly I imagined all of them having the This Is Hell logo on them, all stating that whatever circumstances the marchers have found themselves in, they all agree... This is Hell. I emailed our merch person writing, I'm a very disturbed person who is wondering what it would cost to put the This Is Hell logo on the cheapest surgical masks protesters are wearing. Today I saw a Muslim woman on the street here on Devon wearing one, and I thought, good Lord, I must be evil for even considering selling masks people use to fend off tear gas and other social diseases branded with the This Is Hell logo. Our merch person replied, You are disturbed. But isn't that the only way to respond to the world these days? I'm looking at the paper-style masks out there, but not sure how well they would accept decoration. They have folds that open up and use to conform to your face. Possibly a small imprint on the very top of the mask would work. I wonder if we should consider a smaller This Is Hell sticker that would be useful on small objects of all sorts, like the masks, say a one and a half inch uh, label. You could use it on almost anything. Still, I like the way your brain works. So apparently both myself and our merch person are real weird sickos, which leads me to ask you, dear listener, is there a piece of merchandise this is hell or any so-called anti-capitalist outlet can use to raise money that does not contradict the morality and ethics of anti-capitalism and its opposition to an oppressive system that imposes upon us evils like racism and misogyny? Because we really need to make more money, and my lottery numbers never seem to hit. But that reminds me, I have to go pick up a couple of tickets on the way home tonight. This is Hell, where we put people before profits, which turns out to be an idiotic idea. I'm your host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. The news media often covers events, even historic events, and then just move on to the next story without considering what lessons can be learned from what are at times not only unprecedented happenings, but serious challenges to the status quo, the powers that be. In the very oppressive institutions that make life so difficult for so many in the United States. Here to take us back to and look forward from the uprisings against the state in Ferguson, writer, teacher, and org. Oops, sorry, wrong notes, grabbed the wrong ones. Uh, Sociologist, cultural criminologist Ethnographer Feminism and race scholar Andrea S. Boyles Is author of You Can't Stop the Revolution Community Disorder and Social Ties In Post-Ferguson America Welcome to This is Hell, Andrea
2: Thank you How are you, Chuck?
0: Good, I'm very good Andrea is Associate Professor of Criminal Justice At Lindenwood University Which is about 20 miles from Ferguson She is a feminist, race scholar, and previously the author of Race, Place, and Suburban Policing, Too Close for Comfort. You can follow her on Twitter at Dr. Dr. Andrea S. Boyles, and find out more about Andrea at the website. Dr. Andrea S. Boyles, again with the abbreviation DR. You start by writing on Saturday, August 9th, 2014, a little afternoon, 18-year-old Michael Brown Jr. and his friend Dorian Johnson were on their way back from a local store, Sam's Meat Market, walking in the middle of the street that runs through the Canfield Green apartment complex. Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson pulled up and allegedly told them to get the F on the sidewalk. Apparently, words were then exchanged between Wilson and Brown, and a struggle ensued at the squad car putting Brown on the run. With Wilson firing at him, Johnson then took cover and Brown reportedly stopped running, put his hands up and faced Wilson. At that point, Wilson shot Brown in the head, killing him. Wilson later described Brown as having charged him. Was Michael Brown killed for not being on the sidewalk? And a question that I've always had about this is... Different neighborhoods have different things. Places in Gary and here in Chicago, there are no sidewalks. You don't have a choice. You have to walk down the street. So was Michael sure. Brown shot for being on the side not being on the sidewalk and was there even a sidewalk for him to be on?
2: So what I would say as a sociologist, and since I attend to patterns and trends, it has been a trend for black folks historically to have encounters aggressive encounters with law enforcement officers over um minor infractions or even no infractions um interestingly uh, while that encounter occurred um seemingly because Mike Brown was walking in the middle of the street it had been interestingly in the project previously um 20 miles from Ferguson where I conducted a similar project that they didn't have sidewalks for a while in their community and so some of the respondents there or participants there talked about being approached by the police because they were walking in the street and so I I think one of the things that I tried to capture in this book You Can't Stop the Revolution is that there is this ongoing notion when it comes to black folks that um, you live your everyday damned if I do, damned If I don't. And so there's really no one particular go to for how black people come to encounter law enforcement and how some of those encounters, no matter how minor they might seem, can seriously take a disproportionate turn that might accidentally land um and when i say accidentally i'm saying that in quotations that seemingly accidentally land some person some black or brown person dead and a host of folks indirectly um affected by it
0: so how much then are the police officers pushed to enforce these technicalities, how much is it a decision on the individual police officers to enforce these technicalities? Because I've always thought that the thing that white people don't realize about white privilege when it comes to the police is that any minor technicality you can be charged with when you are a person of color, when you're a black person. But that kind of stuff is often overlooked when you are white. So how, how, much are, how much would you blame this on cops being pushed to enforce technicalities? And how much would you blame this on the simple individualist racism of that particular police officer?
2: I argue that it's both. Um, there, we certainly deal with um, institutional discrimination, that is a long-standing issue. Um, but there is also, um, when we think about institutions in and of themselves, they are composed of actors, right? There are individual actors that make up these various institutions and then that, um, you know, um, draft policies and then enforce these pieces of, um, uh, various pieces of policies or legislations into practice. Right. And so, um, Police are enforcers of that legislation. They're enforcers of government agendas and so forth. And so when we talk about um, how much of it is occurring individually uh, or when we account for it at the individual level, I would say that law enforcement officers have discretionary power. And by saying that, they have the wherewithal and the ability, and they are empowered. They are commissioned by commission, empowered by the state to make split-second decisions. And those split-second decisions can uh, immediately lend itself to form various forms of brutality and possibly death, or those immediate decisions can, have a, um, can um, um, initiate a process. That ultimately leads to those things, and by saying initiate a process, meaning they have the, the they have the power and the decision making ability to um, to decide whether they want to encounter someone for a minor infraction or even no infraction or uh, or not. Um, I talked about with someone earlier the situation with Sandra Bland and not knowing all the particulars and certainly not wanting to speak um, extensively on that. But one of the things that we talked about was this notion of pulling her over um, seemingly for failing to signal in a lane change. Those kinds of things, again, speak to discretionary power. How many people would be stopped or pulled over all day, every day? If we were going to truly police folks based on who's walking in the street versus a sidewalk, who is putting on a uh, change signal to cross from one lane to the next, like what would law enforcement in and of itself look like all day, every day? And so these, again, are instances where you have seemingly minor infractions but police officers are empowered to uh, you know to decide is this something that i literally want to address uh, with this particular person in this particular place or um or not and so it is in that decision that ultimately lends itself to these disproportionate aggressive encounters with um black and brown populations
0: Okay, so when it comes to those aggressive encounters, I know it is impossible to guess what a person's motivations are. But I do want to have a better understanding of the decision-making that leads to a violent response by police. I've talked to police officers here in Chicago. One of the things that they've pointed out to me is that the Iraq War veterans who are coming back from the Iraq War that started in 2003, not the Gulf War from the early late 1980s, early 1990s, he sees a far more aggressive Police force that has been trained within the Iraq war, where you have to be hyper vigilant as a police officer and you view the people who you are trying to quote unquote serve and protect as the actual enemy. Do you think that there has been an impact? Do you think there's been an increase in the aggressiveness of police? potentially based uh, or caused by their training as Iraq War military police officers and they're taking that military training to the streets?
2: So I, again, I account for historical patterns. And so the Iraq War um, is just one thing in particular. I take more of a broader scope of things and so we can begin this conversation really from the onset of United States, the onset of establishing this country as the United States of America. There was no Iraq war there, and yet there has always been an overwhelming amount of aggression or what we, what I refer to as differential policing in terms of dealing or um, social control mechanisms that were inflicted upon black and Brown folks, period. Um, It didn't have to, and I, and I, and I'm very careful to not um, sort of, Um, identify one thing individually, because it's a culmination of things. And again, this has been historical. And I think sometimes when we zero in on one particular incident, um, which, you know, it, it sort of becomes a rabbit hole, or it gives an out, so to speak, for explaining when there is no explaining in terms of one isolated situation, this is a trend. These are longitudinal patterns. Um, and so um, and really at the root of it is discrimination. Um, and so if anything has increased, um, what I would say is that there has been a resurgence of overt hate. So we can have that conversation as well. Um, and when I say and uh, uh, a resurgence of, obelt, of overt, excuse me, or obvious discrimination, I think that that has increased. And so when we live in a culture where there is an increase or a resurgence or refreshing of um, differential treatment or how we think about um, black and brown people, and there is an acceptance, so to speak, and um, mistreating them and sort of um, finding various ways to justify it, i.e. the Iraq War, um, or finding various, uh, you know, um, um, out for sort of, um, uh, or even um, secondary victimizing them by saying it was something that they did um, that caused this circumstance. I think that when we do that, we can, we, we need to do that within a context of the overarching picture and the overarching um, circumstances is discrimination in general and the fact that that continues to persist and continues to be justified and sort of minimized and excused through these individual isolated incidents.
0: Do we also then make a mistake if we focus on, say, the pattern of militarization of the police over the last 25 years, something that we've been covering here on our show since the last century, playing a role not only in the killings of Michael Brown, but the reaction by the police to the protests? Is militarization, is there an increased militarization of the police that is leading to increased aggression by police, especially towards black citizens?
2: Yes. Yes, I think that I, I think that yes, it's certainly with Ferguson, we can see um, you know um, an escalation in social control mechanisms that were being used from overlapping, simultaneously, um, um, simultaneous policing of multiple and I, and, and uh, multiple overlapping jurid, police jurisdictions, um, the various layers of policing that occurred. From um, local to state to then federal. You, uh, so we can see all those manifestations at play, but certainly the militarization, and, and still, even in that, I have that conversation in You Can't Stop the Revolution, but I have that conversation still within the context of that being a more like one of many, one of many um, sort of go tos in terms of um, providing social control or implementing social control over black and brown folks and doing it in a more overt, um, justifiable way because militarization in and of itself has been sort of attached to um, uh, the, the militarization of it all is sort of coming or at least being attached to this notion that black and brown folks are an increasing threat. And so as black and brown folks become identified or characterized um, and um, propagandized as an increasing threat, then likewise it becomes justified for the state to increase the responsiveness to to it. And militarization is just one of those increases that have been justified and has been justified beginning with whether we go back to no knock raids and so forth used in, um, the, you know, the war, quote unquote, war on drugs and the crack epidemic, those kinds of things on up to the present. So it's just become more routine to have that occur rather than just um, in truly militarized circumstances or in, um, you know, um, hostage situations or raid uh, drug raid situations. It's now, as a result of Ferguson and some, it has become common to have that all out militarized presence in a regular neighborhood.
0: And that all-out militarized presence, I would assume, rises tensions between the police and the black residents. Meanwhile, people who are supporters of the police might see the militarization of the police as a good thing in that there's no way that there are going to be any kind of challenge to that amount of power. You get to the Ferguson protests and you write how you saw an officer stood atop a militarized police vehicle with a very visible high-powered rifle. All were stark visuals that coalesced into an eerie scene in the middle of the street. So as the police become more militarized, do you believe that police relations with black citizens become worse?
2: Well, yeah, it's compromised even more so because it creates sort of this contradicting position that's coming from a continuum of policing and so i talk about that the police continuum and so there's this sliding scale right where there's a conversation that's had about community policing and so then folks suggest well we would like to partner with the black community and um and have more of um uh, you know have these community relations and exchanges and so forth that are you know, um, you know, that resembles sort of, um, or, or at least are sort of crafted or constructed in the best interest by and in the best interest of the black residents. The reality of it is when we saw militarization in that fashion in this neighborhood, i.e. Ferguson, in those communities over and over and over again, the, the, the very sight of it from day one immediately snatches the bottom out of the possibility for community policing or an uh, officer-friendly relationship, excuse me, because what it suggests is that in a blink of an eye, it can immediately go full throttle from this idea or this notion that we can work, this quote-unquote idea that um, we can work together to suddenly there are actual tanks and visible rifles on the ground. And what participants responded to me and often characterized themselves as feeling, uh, me included, is as enemy combatants. So how can we build community uh, would be the argument from the perspective of black folks. How then do you build community with the same people who within one encounter can easily transition within a matter of an hour or two or three into full deal militarization with you standing on the other end of it, um, uh, appearing to be an enemy combatant irrespective of citizenship. Like how does that, and even if there was not citizenship, the idea is that how then do you forge a relationship or how do you expect some semblance of harmony when it is crystal clear or becomes evident to the people um, who have the least amount of power by comparison that they are subject to the state and subject to the state um no matter uh, no matter what you know by any means or any amount of aggression whatever it might take and under whatever circumstances that causes them to be identified as a threat which again is a broad range of things, um, can easily land them on the receiving end of the worst of state enforcement.
0: That's really interesting that the mere presence of militarized police can become an obstacle, a barrier between the people who are protesting and the people who are policing as far as a means of communication. Because we recently spoke with sociologist Ann Nassauer, who wrote a book called Situational Breakdowns. And it's about, it studies the reasons for protest violence. And uh, one of the reasons that she pointed to, one of the many reasons she pointed to, was poor communication between police and protesters. So how How much do you think that poor communication led to not only the tensions, but the violence that happened at the Ferguson protests? Was it simply a matter of poor communication? And what does it say to you about the police when they do such a bad job of uh, communicating with protesters?
2: So Ferguson it It occurred on the heels again of a long standing history of poor communication between law enforcement and black citizens. I think when we again have these conversations it's important for people to understand that the first introduction of law enforcement to black folks and the communication attached to it that came through the slave patrol that was the very first agency or form of um Um, official, so to speak, law enforcement interaction with Black people. The slave patrol. So if we can sort of wrap our minds around that for a second and think about what kind of gracious communication or harmonious communication would or could possibly occur between slave patrol and enslaved Black folks. And so someone might say, Well, that's a bit extreme. No, that's history. And so, again, I think that that's oftentimes why we are unable to process these events as they occur in the present and as they may continue to occur in the future, because we have to first start at the beginning and try to wrap our minds around like what has differential policing always looked like for black people? What were those first encounters with black folks in what did that communication process look like there? So then if we full speed ahead, or fast forward ahead, then um, again, my suggestion is that we think about communications in the simple sense. Um, Black folks, Um, In the protesting or what have you that occurred there in Ferguson, that was not about communication or breakdown in it. Um, it, Like the day of Mike Brown's encounter with law enforcement, that has been a consistent trend of breakdown and the inability to have a cohesive communication between Black people in general and institutional um, ideas and agendas that oftentimes shape aggressive policing of black folks in general um or period um, from neighborhood to neighborhood every day all day what do those communications um or those um, interactions look like between black folks and law enforcement i account for those i accounted for those prior to ferguson and in fact was accounting for them in hopes um, that they would in some way circumvent what ultimately happened. Um, and so, again, what do those communication processes look like every day? Um, and, you know, between black folks and law enforcement. Some of the participants in my projects have said that they appreciate law enforcement that patrol their neighborhoods simply saying good morning, a simple hello, has proven to be a huge deal for some of the black participants. Versus law enforcement, who um, law enforcement officers who patrol their communities and gawk at them and deal with them or watch them in very uh, very suspiciously. So those little things: hello, good morning, have a great afternoon, how can I help you? How can I? Those kinds of things in a friendly sense. Those become the startups for what could be better communication processes, but often do not happen because of extreme surveillance.
0: And this is the new word of the day in policing here in the United States, which is mitigation. And we are all hoping that the police can connect with and communicate better with their communities through this new strategy, who knows how well it will work or not. But given that context that you were just discussing, this long-term process of the police having poor communications with citizens... Given that context, was Ferguson always, was that that potential for conflict always simmering in the background? Was it inevitable and unavoidable, and Michael Brown was just the spark that lit the fire that was already w- waiting to be kindled?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Ferguson did not occur in a vacuum. Again, my book, Race, Place, and Suburban Policing, I had just, in the years prior, to Ferguson and 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 not to suggest that it even began there but interestingly I was 20 uh, roughly 20 minutes up the highway conducting that project and in that situation there had not only been um there had actually it had actual, ex, actually um escalated to the point where there had been citizens killed and law enforcement officers killed due to racial uh, you know, uh, racial encounters, racialized and differential treatment of black folks, poor black folks, particularly. And so it, it, in that region or in um, yeah, the St. Louis region, Ferguson it did not occur in a vacuum. And there had been ongoing um, clashes. And it had just been that Mike Brown's situation, that death, his murder Um, was, yes, the thing that ignited um, full-on civil unrest. But Black folks had been engaging in conflict, um, or there had at least been Black citizen police conflict. This is also the reason for the DOJ investigation and part of what, what was discovered there. Those encounters had been ongoing, and not only in Ferguson, but it had been ongoing across the nation and so forth. And so I tell people all the time, just because something or some place is quiet, or just because it happened to be in the suburbs, which was the case for Ferguson, doesn't necessarily equate to um, harmony, doesn't necessarily equate to, uh, you know, uh, or, or, you know, I think oftentimes we have this assumption about place, and I argue about that, you know, sort of argue that in my work, this assumption about place that sub- suburbs for black folks means, you know, a come up. Not particularly, not necessarily. And so yes, this is this has been breeding and, and we are always, even now, I tell people, we are always just one encounter away from full on civil unrest. That's unfortunate. That's difficult to say, but it's a reality. And so except there is a true cultural transformation, um, then It is only then that we can start to um, engage in reformation. And so even then, still, there has to be a number of steps and a number of – and and a deep degree of receptivity to change and implications that are often and uh, and always being produced by researchers like myself for some of these agencies, for the institutions and so forth, um, individual and – individual and beyond it for folks to be receptive and to be uh and to acknowledge the need and not only acknowledge the need in words but acknowledge the need indeed
0: if social unrest is in our future if ferguson was inevitable and avoidable and you were clearly aware of it people other than you were are clearly aware of this potential for social un- unrest in the United States and and were aware of it in Ferguson then to you what explains why there isn't any addressing of uh, possibly stopping that social unrest uh, possibly stopping these confrontations what explains if we know this is an inevitabil- inevitability why we're not doing anything about it
2: so i would Say, from a conflict perspective, there's some benefit to maintaining differential treatment um, there was There was certainly benefit um, economic and political benefit um, with enslavement, and that has not changed um, and so between enslavement on up uh, through Ferguson, where you have people or you know um, where um, dominant or white. Uh, predominantly white institutions are benefiting from it economically, then there's really no incentive to change. It would be great to say that just, you know, based on us being human and, you know, and extending, you know, humanity to one another, that that would be good enough. Um, and, and but trans don't suggest that. Um, and so while we have, you know, and when I say we black and brown folks, while there are often, um, you know, in different spaces, white alliances that will join and partner, the sad reality of it is that, again, the broader culture is still very open and receptive to Um, you know, these imbalances of power and how power and people in very powerful places are privileged in such a way to where they benefit um, from conflict or benefit at least from um, social forces that enrich and extend uh, a political, um, different political agendas and so forth. And so as long as it proves beneficial, Um, to folks, then there's no real um, move to do different. And so this is why it has taken, um, you know, civil unrest. Or uh, we can go further back, different um, forms of revolt or different forms of um, social upheaval. And I say, you know, again, that uh, the unfortunate thing is that it has often taken all-out conflict in many respects historically for any change to take place. Um, and so it, there, there's oftentimes a shock in our social sensibilities in order for people to revisit. And when I say people, meaning dominant or white, populate, white empowered populations to revisit um, some of these things. And that has often only occurred on the heels of um, all out unrest um, and um, um, social redress coming from the populations that are most victimized by it.
0: You write that perhaps naively that you believe the protesters and I, you're writing, were completely non-threatening and defenseless, at least in comparison to the police. Yet, ironically, in light of Brown's and Officer Wilson's deadly exchange, we were still positioned for what could be another ambiguous but transformative confrontation between black citizens and police. How can a confrontation between police and black citizens be transformative. Isn't that kind of violent confrontation, a continuation of the same poor relationship between police and black citizens and really nothing new?
2: So when I say, when I speak to transformative and, you know, I'm, again, I'm speaking to broader society, right? So apart from the uniform, law enforcement officers are individuals too. And so we are all a part of a culture, broad and small. It, it, we are all, whether it's, a, again, the broader culture or a subculture, we are all actors in the grand scheme of things, and we are all socialized in a particular way. And m- much of that socialization process is to think differently and biasly towards black and brown populations. And so whether that is um, being absorbed and, by some person who decides to go into the police academy and ultimately becomes a law enforcement officer, or whether that is absorbed by a person who ultimately goes on to become an elected official, whether that is absorbed by some person who ultimately finds themselves or work, uh, or lands themselves on a um, the bench in a courtroom the reality of it is that they have all absorbed and been a significant part of a broader culture where there are socialization processes persistently at play that encourages and that on some level and this is often um and in many respects maybe not as overt for some because if privilege has cushioned and provided space where some people by virtue of their race don't have to contend with the possibility of death in their everyday the reality of it is that this is occurring in, you know even some of the most minute of exchanges the reality of it is that these are individuals who have absorbed um this this uh, acceptance or at least some receptivity to treating people differently and treating people or thinking about people in very inferior ways and then taking that into their respective institutions and having that in, on some level or another even backed or supported by differential policies and differential pieces of legislation. And so that becomes safe space for continuing more of the same and by saying more of the same continuing these ideas that i don't necessarily have to change and so it's the transformation occurs there the root of it going to the root of the problem and the root of the problem is discrimination and calling that out and addressing that not in a surface conversation from one incident to the next but addressing that as a root issue in the broader society and in the subcultures that um, that rest within it, all the institutions and all the structures that are attached to it.
0: You write Ferguson is a template that represents a decisively racialized sociohistorical shift whereby a sustained oppressive interjection occurred that triangulated punitive pre-emancipation messages and indirect experiences triggered by the public display of a state executed black person how much do police in ferguson and maybe even more generally around the united states still act as if emancipation never happened
2: so people would say well you know you all black folks black and brown folks are free you all you know there's no more enslavement um and some would you know fast forwarding to the current some would even argue or leverage the idea that, you know, you've had a black president and so things have gotten better. Well, when people say things have gotten better, like that's subjective, right? And that's subjective in the sense that, okay, so maybe there is not a mass hanging taking place like what what is better how are we accounting for better right and 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 because there are still black and brown folks who are um even in the current very afraid to step out of their home and interestingly very afraid at this point to even be in their home there seems to be a an erasing of safe space historically for black and brown people and so um and so when i talk about ferguson i separate from most people talk about ferguson in two time zones so to speak i talk about ferguson and then i talk about post ferguson and ferguson from where i sit is me articulating as a researcher on the ground day one and as a native in the region me articulating all the things that That um, essentially fed in all the exchanges, the contentious exchanges that fed into Mike Brown's encounter with, um, uh, with that officer, and then being killed. That is Ferguson. Everything prior to Mike Brown's death. And up to the point of his body being removed from the ground, which has been characterized as a modern day lynching, because why? It was the exposure of it all, the inhumanity that uh, was attached to it, the fact that we waited around for hours for that crime scene tape to come down on one of the hottest days of the year, and you know, for his body to be removed, and so people were able to watch. And see law enforcement scatter about trying to figure out, like, what to do. Those kinds of things were apparent. Um, And so you've got black folks watching all of that. When I account for um, post-Ferguson, I'm accounting for everything that transpired upon the removal of his body from the ground. Because it is in that space and in that shift that the initial calls or what I refer to as the more formal calls of action for organizing, Black organizing, this resurgence of Black mobilization went out to all the communities, communities up close and personal in the St. Louis region and the Black community through other means like social media.
0: Oh. So... <laughs> First of all, I'm really enjoying our conversation. Uh, You describe your uh, reconceptualized form of disorder to include pervasive discrimination, e.g. race and class, as social disorder. Here, this term specifically includes rogue or dishonorable police behaviors and extends the typical definition, which denotes people followed by cues such as noise, littering, vandalism, and hanging out on the streets, i.e. loitering. Why do you believe social disorder Best describes policing.
2: So because again, law enforcement is the formal uh, is formal social control. And so when we are accounting for formal social control over black folks or with regards to black folks, um, again, that speaks to uh, maintaining a particular social order. And the social order had been historically, um, quote unquote, um, black folks being um, enslaved and understanding, like knowing your place, know your place. If we started again, historically from even the agenda of the slave patrol, the idea physically and otherwise was to be a reminder to constantly, um, even if there had not been a uh, a physical altercation, the presence of, was to remind in a particular way Um, black folks to know your place, quote unquote, to know what you can do versus not do. People would say, well, you know, we're all the same and we all face the same laws. That has not historically been the case. This is why we can account for slave codes, because that was about legislating and enforcing a totally different set of behaviors and saying that you're going to be policed based on those different behaviors for black people compared to white people this is also why we then had from slave codes to black codes because again that was reaffirming the idea that there is a particular etiquette that is allowable or not allowable for black folks compared to white folks and that black folks would be held accountable for those different etiquette or different expectations from black holes then to Jim Crow laws, because Jim Crow laws again, different timing, but again, more of the same. It's an affirming of a different quote unquote expectation of behavior from black folks and how they will be governed and how they will be responded to that was not extended to white populations. And so this subjectiveness of it all, even Post Jim Crow law, there are still policies and practices. We can even go back to this idea of discretionary power. There is still a differential sort of existence and ideology and what is expected and anticipated from Black folks compared to white populations. Stereotypical ideas are very real. Typecasting of folks, Black folks, Black and brown folks is still a very real thing. And so as long as that continues to be ongoing across institutions, or we can say beginning with individuals across institutions and embedded in the culture at large, then yes, there will continue to be. Um, This idea that black and brown folks are going to be policed differently. And let me say this, you know, and that doesn't suggest that all officers or all individuals who are law enforcement officers put on uniforms daily. And with the idea, I'm going to go into the community and I'm going to do some heinous things. There are some law enforcement officers who do serve honorably, but they're the ones that do not. The ones that do not and the ones that do not within the presence or do so in the presence of other law enforcement officers that do so without consequence within these various agencies be them at the local level or the state or federal level they become the face of the police culture they become the face or the um, posters for these disproportionate encounters where black folks, irrespective of, of slave codes, black code, Jim Crow laws, still are reminded, quote unquote, that there is a different expectation and a different set of consequences that continue to manifest for you through policy and justified in practice and justified by there being no or very minimal consequences that look totally separate and totally contrary to what is carried out in the everyday for white citizens.
0: Andrea, I just want to tell you, first of all, that this is an amazing book, and we just barely got into the real intense content of Andrea's writing, sociologist, Critical criminologist, ethnographer, feminism, and race scholar Andrea S. Boyles is author of You Can't Stop the Revolution, Community Disorder, and Social Ties in Post-Ferguson America. You can follow the book on Twitter at hashtag YouCan'tStopTheRevolution. Andrea is associate professor of criminal justice at Lindenwood University, which is about 20 minutes from Ferguson. She's a feminist, race scholar, and previously the author of Race, place, and suburban policing too close for comfort. And you can follow Andrea on Twitter at Dr. Andrea S. Boyles, as in Dr. Andrea S. Boyles. And you can find out more about Andrea at the website drandreasboils.com. Again, that's Dr, the abbreviation for doctor. One last question for you, Andrea. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. It's the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. I had a different question from hell written down for you, but while listening to your responses to my questions today, I just have one question from hell for you. What the hell is wrong with whitey?
2: <laughs> well, again, I argue, you know, it, there's some benefit. There is some benefit to whiteness, and that benefit is economic, political, and otherwise, and it has been longitudinal. It has the existence of this land as the United States of America and beyond it. Well, so uh,
3: yeah. Ugh. I mean
2: that that question can go a thousand, you know, <laughs> there's so many answers for that, but in a in a you know, in a nutshell, you know, there's benefit. Mm. There's a benefit to the status quo. Otherwise, you know, a, a lot of things would have changed. Um, a lot of things would not have ever even been initiated. The inhumanity of many things wouldn't, you know, th- that would not be a thing. And yet it is because, again, there's some benefit to it.
0: Andrea, I really appreciate you being on the show with us this week. This really is a fascinating book, and I appreciate the fact that you laughed at my question from Helen and gave a very, very important and serious answer. Thank you so much for being on our show this week.
2: Thank you. I appreciate
0: you. All right. Take care. I appreciate you, too. We're all going to die. This is hell. Reproductive rights, choice, and a woman's right to privacy have all failed in guaranteeing a woman's access to abortion, access that was completely legal for the first hundred years of the United States. It wasn't until the late 1960s women's liberation movement that women finally got at least some legal access to abortion. In a few minutes, we'll talk to feminist organizer, author, and activist Jenny Brown about her new book, Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle. Now, it's time for listener feedback. That has been sent to us at, at this is hell.com and Alex Philippe has a question for you. Philippe writes to us to ask. Sorry if you have already addressed this, but what will the question from Hell schedule be like with the new show format? Not too sure right now, Alex. Have you figured out how we're going to do this? Because I was thinking we could reveal the question at the end of our show on Tuesday, and then give the winning answer at the end of the show on Wednesday, or just do it at the beginning of the day on Wednesday, and at the end. Of the... What do you want to do for the question from Hell? What kind of schedule are you looking at?
1: I don't know. I agree with you. Maybe uh, put it out on end of the show on Monday
0: and then let and it give
1: people some time and then reveal it at the end of the show on Wednesday.
0: Okay. But you are going to have a new question from hell tomorrow.
1: Yeah, Yeah. yeah. We'll figure it out.
0: Okay. Uh, So uh, we uh, keep uh, also naming winners of the question from hell, and then the winner doesn't claim their prize. So if you win, send your mailing address to us via a message to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and we will send you your prize, or just email me, chuck, at thisishell.com. But we can't do that without can't mail you your prize without getting your mailing address. So if you have one lately, please contact us so we can send you your prize. Otherwise, we'll just give it to a random listener who drops by. This is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet. That is more a drink and think that happens every Wednesday evening at the bar downstairs from this year's studio, Carrie's Lounge at 2251 West Devon on Chicago's Little... Uh, in Chicago's little India West Ridge neighborhood. We got an email from Lucky, who has joined us in the past during our annual listener appreciation and anniversary party that we host every July. Lucky says, Hi Chuck. Been a This Is Hell fan for ages now. I know that, Lucky. I heard you mention the limerick Soviet on one of the recent episodes of Rotten History. It really is a fascinating piece of history to dig into that's been largely forgotten. Sian Prendeville made a fantastic podcast delving into the history of the establishment and fall of the Soviet and what we can learn from it in modern left movements. And I think he would be an excellent guest to have on to talk about its history and legacy for your audience. Lucky's right. We have had several listeners actually ask us to look into the Limerick Soviet, which was a protest movement against the British military, which had set up a special military area uh, covering most of the city of Limerick. Upon announcement of the new military area, the protesters won a general strike. And for the next two weeks in April of 1919, at the beginning of the Irish War for Independence, the Soviet was behind continuing the city's ability to function, provide city services, all under occupation, including feeding the public and printing its own money. Which reminds me of the Carnation Revolution that we discussed in July with labor historian Raquel Varela, author of A People's History of the Portuguese Revolution, an interview you can listen to at your convenience at thisishell.com. So I'll write already. We'll get Sonia on to talk about the Limerick Soviet, which didn't even last two weeks. That said, several of these Soviets popped up throughout the Irish War for independence, providing the necessities for living during wartime. We got an email from longtime listener Kim, who's upset about something, but I'm not sure what. Kim says, responding to an interview guest who I don't remember, a British fellow about the baby boomers and their financial advantages versus the current generation of youth. I think Kim is referring to D. Hunter, who was on in June to talk about his book, which is a must-read Chav Solidarity Kim continues Bernie Sanders and Nancy Pelosi Are not baby boomers They belong to the Soviet generation Or the silent generation (laughs) I like the other one better They belong to the silent generation They are very very old Poor Bernie at least He's using his last gasp Attempting to raise a couple of issues The Democrats are not about to raise Now I'm not too sure what that has to do with baby boomers having more, far more affordable and accessible education, healthcare, far more public services that were far more effective with jobs that provided pensions and without the precarity of the gig economy and lack of strong labor organizing has to do with Bernie and Nancy being really old. But whatever. Kim then says baby boomers did nothing, just co-opted. Ugh. Don't know what generation the fellow from the UK was from. I'm sure he's had more advantages than many a baby boomer. I think what D. Hunter was saying here was that ideas that young people and organizations like the DSA are coming up with today are being co-opted by baby boomer politicians trying to glom on to the next political flavor of the month. And Kim, D. has definitely had fewer advantages than British baby boomers. British mass transit has become worse and less funded. Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair and David Cameron's austerity has gutted the National Health service, all the nation's public services, including their national health service, which they've always loved. The inner city of places like London have become so gentrified, residents were forced to flee to far off areas due to skyrocketing rents and real estate prices. So yes, Kim, kids today have it far worse than baby boomers did when they were kids. And I've received a bit of blowback from what D. Hunter said on our show about baby boomers. I've had listeners complain about Greta Thunberg for calling out the older generation for not doing anything to address climate change. I don't get it what happens to all these young rebellious revolutionaries when they get old why all of a sudden do they see themselves in competition with younger activists especially when when i've been begging millennials for years on our show to hold their parents responsible and accountable for the mess they left them but millennials to a person on our show said they didn't believe in the blame game because it is a distraction and they don't play the blame game because they said That's so baby boomer. That is baby boomers blaming their parents for what boomers saw as the world's problems when they came of age in the 60s and 70s. So apparently baby boomers still love the blame game, except now instead of blaming their parents for all their problems or holding themselves responsible for not protecting the affordable and accessible public services they enjoyed and not holding themselves accountable for not doing enough to fight climate change, they're blaming their kids for complaining about the mess boomers left for them. Kim closes by saying, ciao, Kim. And I'll close by saying, baby boomers are far worse uh, far worse than you can ever imagine. They're even worse than their parents they despised because they knew the problems they created and instead elected Ronald Reagan as president so they could get a few tax cuts and gut their kids' future. We might get back to listener feedback in a little bit. Coming up on this week's show, we'll get an update on the fight for the struggle to repeal all abortion laws that has been waging for, well, 50 years off and on now. We'll discover how Norway is a primary agent of climate change, and we'll get a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Live from the nightmare of want, this is Hell, reform of abortion laws failed, framing abortion as an issue of privacy or choice was a huge mistake leading to a legal ruling protecting abortions rights that is weak and vulnerable to limiting a woman's access to abortion here to explain what went wrong in the struggle to repeal all abortion laws and what we can do to get back to a focus on repeal instead of reform, we truly have the honor of speaking with writer, teacher and organizer with the feminist organization. National Women's Liberation. Jenny Brown is author of a new book, Without Apology The Abortion Struggle Now. Welcome to This Is Hell, Jenny.
3: Thanks. Good to be here.
0: It's great to have you on the show. Jenny was a leader in the fight to get the morning after pill over the counter here in the U.S. and a plaintiff in the winning lawsuit. You can follow Jenny on Twitter at jennybrownln, and you can learn all about National Women's Liberation by following Four Women's Lib. That's the number Four Women's Lib on Twitter, and or going to their website, women'sliberation.org. You start by writing the first shot in the feminist abortion wars was fired in 1969 in New York City health. Department auditorium where a panel of male psychologists, doctors, clergy, and lawyers and one woman, a sister Mary Patricia, debated exceptions to New York's law forbidding abortion. They were discussing whether a woman should be allowed to have an abortion if her health was in danger or if she had been raped or if she had already given birth to four children. Who started the abortion wars and why? That is, were abortions either becoming increasingly accessible and that was seen as a threat to opponents or are they becoming increasingly limited and those who supported women had had enough and started fighting back? What was the trajectory of the right to an abortion when the current abortion wars that you date to 1969 started?
3: So basically, abortion was legal for the first hundred years of the country, um, and then it was made illegal in 1873. And then we had another hundred years of illegal abortion, but there were ups and downs. And in the post-war period, um, post World War II period, there were um, there was a big crackdown on on doctors who had pretty much been practicing openly uh, in many cases. You know, you could, if you knew somebody who knew somebody, you could get actual an actual physician to do the abortion. There were a lot of crackdowns in the 50s and 60s. Uh, simultaneously, there was a large generation of of women trying to get abortions, and so that led to, I think, a lot of the of the conflicts. Um, but through the 50s and 60s, what we had was a sort of a movement of professionals, doctors and lawyers who, doctors especially, who had seen the carnage. Created by an underground abortion um, system where there were there were no checks and balances. There was no um, guarantee that what you were uh, the person that was doing the abortion was using sanitary procedures, and it led to a lot of deaths and a lot of uh, sterilizations by mistake, and it led to a lot of sickness and wards full of people um, who had uh, had incomplete abortions or difficult or were in, infected from their abortions. So. So, you know, there was a sort of a humanitarian movement to change the system, and they focused on changing the laws to, um, you know, these kinds of exceptions that you mentioned, rape, incest, life of the mother. Um, the, The difference between that and the feminist abortion movement is that the Women's Liberation Movement came along in 1968 and started doing consciousness raising, and one of the things that they learned from talking to each other about their experiences was that, They had all had abortions or had had uh, pregnancy scares, um, and they had had illegal abortions and not told anybody about them, um, and they also saw that the, uh, the reforms that were being suggested wouldn't do a thing to help them. They were, uh, they wanted abortions because they didn't want to have a child at the time, the main reason that everybody who gets an abortion gets one, so, um... So they decided to actually break up the reform hearings, which were talking about loosening the laws um, on the basis that it was just going to be more pain and humiliation for women to have these laws continue to be tinkered with. And they demanded repeal of all abortion laws. Uh, And that was the that was the political demand that eventually got us Roe. First, it got us um, abortion on demand in New York state.
0: It sounds like they were reacting to a pub, a serious, serious public health crisis that had occurred between the time of 1873, when you know abortion had been legal up till then, until the era, the era that you were talking about. What explains to because this is something I've never really understood because of my family's history with uh, women health services, what explains? why that has been forgotten, that public health crisis, the horrors of what happened between 1873 and Roe v. Wade. What explains why that crisis and those awful things that were going on, what explains why those have been forgotten?
3: Well, partly it's the anti-abortion movement uh, tries to put the focus on on embryos and fetuses and stop talking about women. So so very much uh, people have been focused on that. Um, and the media goes along with it. Um, so, so we often don't hear about the, the disastrous, uh, health results of having an, an abortion underground. Um, but I think it's also important to say that it was the positive, um, the positive vision of, uh, people getting full control of their reproduction that really animated the movement in the late sixties and early seventies, um, you know, we had a lot, it was in the middle of the Vietnam War, there was a lot of carnage, a lot of people were dying for a lot of reasons. Um, But to have like the sense that we could have dignity and and a positive positive experience with with our reproductive health, that was a vision that people were really willing to unite around. And the idea was that you would get abortion completely out of the criminal code. Why is it in the penal code to begin with? Um, Why is the results of a pregnancy, um, even a question that that courts and police have anything to do with Um, and give give people back their dignity on on uh, deciding the course of their lives when it came to reproductive decisions. So that was really the vision, I think. And that's we need to get back to that.
0: I was really excited when I read in your book how you write about uh, the—and I'm just going to get back to this one more uh, time—the hundred years when abortion was legal in the United States up until uh, 1873. So the framers of the Constitution were fine with abortion. So I imagine, and I'm pretty sure you'll be pretty—you'll be very happy about this, Jenny, that— now that we have these constitutional originalists on the Supreme Court, like Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch, they're all going to be about, you know, making abortion completely legal, right? Because that would be or- originalism, right?
3: Yes, it would be originalism, but of course, they're not going to do that. Um they they uh, the founders took over the um uh, the common law in in England completely. And that basically said that up until quickening, which is in about a four-month pregnancy, when you can feel the fetus move, um, abortion was completely legal. And because they didn't really have a good sense of... uh, They didn't have good pregnancy tests. um, They they weren't really sure, you know, was it a pregnancy? Was it just a blocked period? There was a lot of confusion scientifically about what was going on. But in general, it was um, the laws that... uh, the laws against abortion only applied to after quickening. And then since that was uh, based on the woman's report, you can say that abortion was essentially legal um, from the country's founding until until the 1860s. Now, in the 1850s and 60s, doctors were the ones who started to try to make it illegal. And the reason they wanted to do that was that their, their main competition was midwives and um, sort of all purpose, uh, family doctors who were not part of the medical profession, but much more traditional healers who did abortions and they did the births and they did all of these things that people relied on. Um, but they weren't part of this new profession. Um, and it was also a, uh, male dominated profession trying to eliminate a female dominated profession. Um, and so they thought uh, making abortion illegal was one way to do that. They also wanted to put uh, abortion on a more scientific basis. The idea of, of reproduction, they felt that, you know, there wasn't any bright line between, you know, with some scientific justification between uh, a fetus that you could feel move and one that you couldn't feel move. Um, so they tried to get the clergy. They tried to get the newspapers. They tried to get everybody to be against abortion. And they had a very hard time um the clergy didn't want to annoy their congregations, uh, and they also took ads from from uh, abortion providers, and newspapers didn't want to give up their uh, really lucrative um, advertising in uh, for abortion and and abortifacient pills, which were very common. And you know there was a there was a very famous uh, abortion provider on Fifth Avenue in New York. Um, you know she spent she spent sixty thousand dollars a year on on advertising in those 60,000 in those days. Um, so, so it was, it was very much an industry and they wanted to put it out of business. Um, it wasn't until after the civil war that they really got some traction. And one of the reasons they got traction was that women married women were controlling the size of their families through abortion. Um, and that meant that, uh, they were very concerned that, uh, native born Protestant women were having fewer children, whereas these, um, you know, as they thought of it, the hordes of Catholics who were who were immigrants who were having more children, um, and so they were very worried about about the, uh, you know, the the balance between religions and and what we would think of as as basically a uh, an, an ethnic or racial um, conflict. But it was it was framed, uh, you know, that the Irish and the Italians were the ones who were having having too many babies. So. Um, And we can hear echoes of that now in some of the rhetoric from Republican politicians talking about, you know, how, uh, you know, these uh, sort of racist view that we we can't, quote, unquote, uh, rebuild our civilization based on someone else's babies, unquote. Um, And that's uh, from Iowa Representative Steve King. Um, a tweet from him. So, so you can see that some of these same uh, same issues are coming back again. Um, and uh, they managed to get laws in the 1860s in various states, and then in 1873, the Comstock Law um, prohibited all birth control, sex information, sex education, and and uh, of course, abortion um, throughout the country. So that was when when the uh, great really came down
0: so the very american triumvirate of patriarchy capitalism and racism led to the more making abortion illegal that's great you can always you know, always uh, depend on them for really screwing something up so for the next right. century after uh, 1873 there would be illegal abortions and what i was mentioning earlier my grandmother worked at a shelter in downtown detroit beginning in the 1920s that housed abused wives and assisted them in getting Access to abortion I remember my mother Telling me that if They couldn't get an abortion They'd end up visiting What she called Angels of death And they would get uh, What she would Describe as Back alley abortions, which as a kid I took literally, and I'm still uncertain of how literal they were being. Every description they had of it was horrifying to me. So I was raised with this idea that while abortion was necessary, women should be allowed to have them without any legal obstacle. I also grew up still having a very negative connotation of abortions as a desperate last resort. What is the impact of that century of illegal abortion on the abortion debate today? Did making abortion a crime change the ways and how did making abortion change the ways uh, that Americans viewed abortion when they changed it to being a crime
3: Well I think a lot of women uh, and the, and this became clear in the 60s when people started talking about their abortions a lot of women had abortions anyway and in fact the um the about about a third of women a third to a quarter of women throughout US history have have had an abortion so um, that means that uh, you know we know a lot of people. There are a lot of people in our families. Um, go back in your family tree, think about how many people have probably had an abortion. Um, so, I think you know while there while there was all this shame and secrecy around it, because, of course, it was illegal and you could be um, you could be arrested for for uh, even knowing about an abortion. You could be interrogated. They could try to force you to name name the person who was providing the abortion. All of these things meant that people were very ashamed and and, and didn't want to talk about it. Um, it was very much a real part of everyone's lives, um, you know, because it's not just the women; it's also the other members of the family who maybe uh, you know wanted to control their reproduction too. So, um, so I think I think it just uh, it just put it underground in both in our thinking about it and in in, um, in the law. So, you know, it took a lot of making it public again in the sixties to really, um, to really break through that. And one of the things that we've kind of gone backwards on is because the Supreme court sort of grasped at this idea of privacy in order to, um, basically to respond to the, the mass movement that was in the streets demanding abortion. Um, they, uh, you know, A lot of uh, people who are for abortion rights talk about how important privacy is. And I think that that is actually sort of going the opposite direction of where we need to go. We need to be making it more public like the group Shout Your Abortion has been doing. We need to be talking about it as a normal thing rather than feeling that stigma and and sort of feeding that shame and stigma by feeling that we can't speak about it. So, um, so privacy and stigma is always aimed at trying to keep us from talking to each other about what's going on and and so we need to break through that and that's that's one of the one of the things that really won us the advances on abortion that we got in the 70s
0: I want to ask you a few really, really, really basic questions that you address in the first chapter of your book. What happens during an abortion that you do not think is commonly understood, even misunderstood, leading to poor decisions by citizens when it comes to how they make any decisions? towards policy on abortion laws. What do you think is so mis- is the most, not necessarily the most, but what do you think is commonly misunderstood that would help people make better decisions if they really knew what takes place during an abortion?
3: Well, I, one of the things is that a lot of the anti-abortion propaganda focuses on these giant fetuses um, giant bloody fetus posters. And so a friend of mine who went to uh, high school in South Dakota said that there were the giant bloody fetus posters outside of her high school every day she walked outside her high school. And so she said, well, I thought abortion would be, it would be this big bloody fetus that you would see, um, you know, and she had real sex ed, but uh, but there there's still this idea that it's a very complicated thing. There's this giant fetus, it's all this stuff. So um so the thing is that before 12 weeks um the the embryo or fetus it changes from embryo to fetus at 8 weeks is 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 basically extremely small you can barely see it if it's if it's before 8 weeks um it's also an extremely simple safe operation it takes 5 minutes um basically what your practitioner does is they introduce a, a drinking straw like um Suction device into your uh, uterus and then um, suck the contents of your uterus out. Um, it's v- it's very simple. It's quite expensive in this country, partly because it's so uh, there are so many laws regulating uh, abortion providers that they you know they and they also need all of these security measures. So every time you put a restriction or something else, you're adding to the price and difficulty getting abortions. Um, but it's but it's a very simple procedure, and it's a very common procedure um as I said, uh, w- between one and three and one and four women have gotten abortions throughout our history, but also um right now it's it's you know thirty percent of of women have gotten abortions, so it it you know to think of it as like this very special emergency it's just it just doesn't match the reality and I think. Because there's so much drama around the debate, um, people think it must be a very dramatic uh, decision and a very dramatic experience. And certainly it's, it's great when you are pregnant and you don't want to be, to not be pregnant. But, um, but it's not a particularly dramatic experience and it's not a particularly dramatic procedure. Um, and it's something that uh, everybody needs to have access to. I mean, the main problem in the United States, of course, is that we don't have a national health care system. So you're paying out of pocket almost certainly for your abortion. And the average cost is five hundred and thirty dollars, which is really hard to come up with for most people. So um, that's that's the main obstacle. Um, the main obstacle is not, you know, that it's a difficult procedure or that you might uh, experience adverse health uh, consequences. That's extremely unlikely. Um, there are a lot of other procedures that are much more dangerous that we we get a lot of, and it just um, I think that just getting rid of some of the hysteria around it is really important
0: and I you know reflexively up until I would say fifteen years ago, twenty years ago when I uh, first spoke with Jennifer Baumgartner, author of Manifesta, I immediately uh, deferred to a sense of sympathy and sensitivity toward women who had gone through abortions but I now I know and I realize after talking to Jennifer that is putting you know while i you know maybe my heart was in the right place it certainly wasn't because that puts the woman who has had an abortion into the position of being a victim what's wrong with seeing a woman as a victim of an abortion
3: yeah, I mean, this is something that the right wing says all the time when they t- when they're trying to say, oh, well, it's not the it's not the women who are getting abortions; it's these terrible doctors that are inflicting them on them. Well, the women that are getting abortions want the abortions, and therefore, getting having a good, skilled doctor to do it is is you know a wonderful thing, um, and you know we're. Uh, you could even argue that abortion is taking control of your life. Um, so it's it's really not um, anything to be worried about. I mean, you know, do we say we're do we say we're a victim of a tonsillectomy or, um, you know, it's it's just a very common procedure. And um, of course, there are a lot of feelings around abortion and people who wanted to have a kid but decided for various reasons, like. They didn't think their partner would hold up, that they thought they didn't have enough money to raise a child, the child care situation or their health care situation was too difficult. Those folks who want to have a child but then had to get an abortion because they thought it was just too hard, obviously you're going to have feelings about of, of anger and, and grief around that. But that's not because of the abortion. That's because of our terrible child-rearing system in the United States, which doesn't provide the things that parents need to raise their kids. And uh, just for starters, um, you know, national health care, which is provided to virtually everybody um in uh, in other countries, but we apparently can't have that here because we have to fund a giant uh for-profit insurance system. A child care system where people can can uh put their kids and the and the workers are, are paid adequately and the um and it's safe. Um uh, and frankly, paid leave, which we have no paid leave in this country, a couple of states have put it through, but nationally we have no paid leave system, um, so it's completely up to your employer, and most people have to go back to work after having a baby after three or four weeks. So um, so th- those kind of conditions, of course it's difficult to have a child, and of course you would have to make those decisions um, and, and feel justifiably angry and bad about having to make them. Um, but... That's not to do with the abortion. That's to do with the system.
0: Is there – well, not is. At least to me, there seems to be a liberal sense that abortion is something that people have who simply do not have access to birth control and a good sex education program because that implies it is mostly the poor who cannot afford contraception or – It is not easily accessible and the uneducation, which again, comes back to the poor for not having adequate educational funding or resources. Uh, Are abortions more than anything, the outcome of poverty and poor education?
3: Well, I mean, obviously it costs a lot to get effective contraception and often to to come up with a system that you really like, that doesn't have a lot of side effects. You often have to go back to to your provider again and again. So, so this is, and, and, you know, we all think that na- a national health care system that covers all of that is the answer to that. But a lot of people, their contraceptive fails. It doesn't matter how much money you have, um, your contraception can still fail. Um, and, you know, every contraceptive method, including sterilization, has a failure rate. So, um, you know, if, if your contraceptive method is, is 97% effective, that means that out of 100 couples that are using it, Three are going to have a pregnancy every year. So that's a lot of people once you start adding it up. Um, so I think obviously we need to have uh, we 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 want adequate contraception, good contraception. We also need contraception that guys can use. Um there needs to be research on that. Uh um it's just uh, but that's not the issue with abortion because it all has a failure rate. And you might just end up not using contraception. I mean, I certainly have done that in my life. I don't think there are very many people uh, who haven't. Um, you know, it's just a matter of how life is sometimes. So I, I think I, I think that when we focus on contraception, we're just sort of um, making it sound like it's it's people who get pregnant's fault for not being adequately careful and you know we we all should be these good girls who are very very careful with our with our contraception um the other thing is you know i mean guys have a role in this um every pregnancy that's not a <laughs> condom failure is you know is is a, a guy is responsible so um you know we also need to need to remember that and i think um you know guys should be a lot more open to uh to using contraception than they are um that's, that's the other part of it that, that is sometimes, uh, uh, you know, it's all on the woman, right? Um, Wait, her sexual, her sexual experiences and her sexual activities are are always under the microscope, but guys kind of get a free pass.
0: You know that's a it's that's a fascinating thought. Just because I was thinking about the T-shirts that came out a while ago that said "I had an abortion," and uh, as you were pointing out, the speakouts that happened back in nineteen sixty-nine and nineteen seventy, and uh, women sharing their experiences of having abortions, and how much that can move the cause of abortion law repeal forward. To what extent do you think there would be a good contribution by men if they wore t-shirts saying that I had an abortion? In other words, I was the person involved in that abortion, or is this a place that men shouldn't be involved?
3: <laughs> I, I don't think that would quite work, but certainly, <laughs> but you're, you know, I paid for an abortion, might be, might be better.
0: <laughs> that, yes, definitely. <laughs> you know? Or I paid for half an abortion. I think that would probably be for better, more for men.
3: I mean, I mean, part of it is that birth control is is primarily looked at as women's responsibility, and so and and because we bear the brunt of the results, we tend to be the ones who are paying for it. It's very expensive, so like guys should be guys should be at least sharing half, maybe taking all of it. J- just you know, because it's the wear and tear on our bodies that. Uh, uh, and and I we should also say that you know some people who don't af- identify as women. Um, also need abortions. So abortions are for anybody who can get pregnant.
0: Right. right. Maybe it should be, uh, I went Dutch on an abortion or something like that. Uh, Jenny, so uh, how much has healthcare profiteering become an obstacle to having access to an abortion? How far could you mentioned it already but how far could either the uh, public option or medicare for all or universal health care coverage how far could that go towards giving women access to an abortion after all we're still going to have the same politicians in place and i could see how they would be all right we can have universal health care but it doesn't cover abortion
3: yeah and in fact that was the situation um sort of there was the 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 half uh the the um I, I guess I can't exactly say that on the air, but anyway, the, the um, not very good uh, uh, Clinton healthcare plan that was that was planned in the '90s. Um, they immediately jettisoned abortion out of that plan, and that was the the um, impetus for creating uh, this movement around reproductive justice. The term reproductive justice was coined at a conference where women of African descent were discussing this jettisoning of abortion from the, from the Clinton healthcare plan. And they, um, they formed up a group and they, uh, placed an ad. Um, it was signed by over 900, uh, black women saying, you know, we are not going to support a a healthcare system that doesn't take into account our needs on, on reproductive health, including abortion. Um, and so, uh, You know, it's it's not a surprise that that black women would be in the vanguard on this because, uh, you know, we have not only experienced um, in the United States uh, a lot of forcing people to have kids. We've also experienced, um, uh, especially women of color and poor women have experienced forced sterilization. So um, that whole the, the whole idea of reproductive justice is that you need the right to not have kids when you don't want them to have kids when you do want them and to be able to raise your kids in healthy and humane conditions. So, um, we, you know, we can't divide up those, those things. Um, you know, the way that we need to get, I think the, the way that we should fight for, uh, for abortion, full abortion rights is it should be included in a national healthcare system. Um, And that would include, include contraception, um, and all the different forms, forms of contraception, including the ones that the right wing claims cause abortions, like the morning after pill and the IUD. Um, the thing is that we've been fighting for 40 years against the Hyde Amendment, which prevents, uh, women on Medicaid from getting abortions in, in most states. And, um, you know, that will, even if we win that, that will only cover people who get Medicaid. There are a lot of folks who don't get Medicaid that also need abortions and can't afford them. Um, so really, we need it to be covered through a national health system that covers everybody. And that would go a long way towards uh, getting us the kind of reproductive rights that that we have wanted from the start. You know, in Europe, when they won abortion rights in the early 70s, it was simply included in their national health system. And so people had um, had free abortions. Um and, of course, the socialist world was way ahead of that, um, you know, when East Germany and West Germany uh, combined, East German women had uh, full rights to abortion and West German women had very restricted rights to abortion. And then they sort of split the difference. Um, but they they were free, free through a national health system. That's what we need.
0: That reminds me and thank you for reminding me uh, that uh, Henry Hyde was a dick. Uh, What's wrong with um, using reproductive health and not using the word abortion in your terminology? And why would a feminist like Hillary Clinton not use the word abortion?
3: Well, again, it's trying to be quiet about things, and um, and perhaps you know the idea that we could sneak it by the the Senate, they wouldn't notice that this was about abortion. That's not going to happen. We need to be forthright about abortion. Um, I think uh, choice has often become the go-to word because people don't want to say abortion; they're they're um, uncomfortable saying it, and they feel that it will be antagonizing. Um, in fact, you know. The way that we won abortion rights is by naming abortion, and you can see more recently um, in the in the recent st- struggle for repeal of abortion laws in Ireland, one of the first things that those campaigners did is they named their group the Abortion Rights Campaign, and this was very hard at the time. And um, even in 2016, it was hard for them to start a group and call it Abortion Rights Campaign. People were were shocked by three years later, everybody was using the word, including politicians. So we just need to break through the idea that we can't say the word. If we can't say the word, how are we going to be able to defend the right?
0: Exactly. Uh, Way back in February 2001, we had the late great attorney Vince Bugliosi on our show, the guy who prosecuted Charles Manson, and he was on to discuss his argument that the U.S. Supreme Court uh, decision in Bush v. Gore was treason. During that conversation, and to be honest, I can't even remember how it came up, I asked Vince about Roe v. Wade, and he told us that he thought it was a weak decision based on privacy and not the right of women to do what they want not on, as you say, the freedom to have an abortion without any law being an obstacle and in your way. When we had Vince on and he said that I got a lot of emails from people saying you shouldn't be critical of Roe v. Wade. How vulnerable does Roe v. Wade make access to and the very right to an abortion?
3: Well, Roe basically restricts how much states can restrict abortion right so it it fetters states and prevents them from making it illegal the way these uh in alabama and so forth have come down now um those are all in court those are all going to get challenged um so right now abortion is still legal in in all 50 states um you can get one um but uh roe was a compromise with what the women's liberation movement wanted which was to get abortion completely out of the law um You know, there is no reason to have it in the law. And it was the Supreme Court was going back to their um, their decision in Griswold versus Connecticut, which was a a birth control decision, which said that in all states in the United States, doctors could prescribe um, birth control to their married patients. Um, So and they said that the reason was uh, was there was this privacy, implied privacy um, in the constitution. So they went back to that when they were uh confronted with this challenge on abortion. Um but it's not a particularly clear or ringing way to uh to defend something that seems like such a fundamental right. And I should say that women at various points in our history have tried to get uh get birth control laws eliminated based on uh you know the uh the anti-slavery amendment or um, the right to pursuit of happiness there are some very fundamental ways that that um you know the government should be uh should be defending our rights on this stuff and you know it's congruent with a lot of other rights that we have in the constitution it makes perfect sense but um but they just happen to be privacy and my main thing is we should not um you know base our political organizing on the you know the sort of jerry-rigged legal structure, and talk about privacy as, in, as you know, this key thing. That's that's for the courts. Um, and certainly, criticizing Roe versus Wade from a left or feminist perspective is not going to weaken the decision. Um, what's going to weaken the decision is is a bunch of right-wing justices deciding that they can get away with uh, with taking away our rights. Um, and they if they think they can get away with it, if we're not out in the streets, that's how it's going to happen.
0: You write this realization led to the slogan that the personal is political a phrase meaning that things that seem to be personal struggles in fact have political roots and solutions this is the realization when women realized that others had the same shared experience of having an abortion perhaps nothing seemed more personal and secret than abortion these women made abortion public and political is the lingering legacy of the 1960s women's liberation movement the recognition and understanding that the personal is political, which leads to the eventual realization and extrapolation that everything is political. Did the fight for abortion rights lead to politics becoming visible visible in everything? Is that that the link, the real lingering legacy of the women's liberation movement?
3: Well, I think the lingering legacy of the women's liberation movement is we changed a whole lot of laws where we couldn't, for example, wear, uh, uh, wear pants. Um, we were, uh, uh, legally under our husband's, uh, uh, bank account. We couldn't get our own credit cards. We couldn't get things in our own name. Uh, we couldn't get divorces. We, I mean, there is a lot that the women's liberation movement has left us a lot of equality and education. Um, just, I could go on and on. Um, so abortion is just a piece of that, and I think uh, for us to we need to look at um, all of the other things that are sort of an unfinished revolution on feminism, and and see how abortion is related to those. I mean, our inability to get childcare um, and and healthcare for for ourselves and our kids, um, you know, those those are part of this unfinished unfinished revolution that we we, uh, you know, in the '60s. People wanted to, wanted to get that stuff, and it's been another 50 years, and we still haven't got it. Um, and part of the reason we're seeing this, uh, you know, this very intense stuff around abortion now is, um, is that our birth rate has gone down because it's so darn ha- hard to have kids in the United States um, you know, with, with the conditions that people are facing. So, um, so we have the lowest ever birth rate that we've had. Um, and, uh, that's why I think part of the reason that we're seeing some of this, um, some of this stuff go down and we're seeing, you know, the Supreme court looks like it's going to reconsider, um, whether or not doctors have to have admitting privileges in hospitals, which is just another way to restrict the supply of abortions. So, um, you know, it's not just around religion. It's very much an economic uh, question. Are we going to have a um a child rearing system where the rich have to put in money for child care and health care and paid leave, or are we gonna continue to be pushed uh, pushed back and forced to have kids even when we can't afford them? That's really the question that we're facing right now.
0: You offer several unhelpful arguments for abortion rights, and you've touched on a few already. But one that you mentioned is abortion is about individual choice. And you explain this removes abortion from the realm of political power and narrows it to an individual decision. The neoliberal idea is that everyone will take care of themselves and the problem will be solved. Why doesn't that work when it comes to the issue of abortion?
3: Well, it goes back to what I was saying about uh, reproductive justice and the movement for reproductive justice. If you just look at at abortion as an individual choice and somebody is having trouble raising their kids, sort of the neoliberal answer is, well, you had a choice. You shouldn't have had that kid. Um, But the reproductive justice answer is we are doing needed work for the whole society when we raise our children. And... And we should get some compensation and help doing that. Um, And so it's not just an individual issue, whether or not you have children. It's actually a society-wide issue. And we can only now see that um, as the birth rate has gone down lower and lower. And it started to panic people um, about, you know, oh, gosh, are we going to be able to pay for Social Security? Which turns out to be a scam, but they are trying to force the birth rate up. Because they're worried about uh, growth in the economy and so forth, and our answer has to be that we we are when we want kids, we have to have good conditions to raise them in, and we have to have paid leave like every other country has. I mean, there are literally about four countries that don't have any paid maternity leave, and the U.S. is one of them. Um, We have to have healthcare that we can rely on. That is there no matter what. Um, it doesn't depend on our job or our being married or any of these other things. It's just there because we're there and need it. Um, and then we need a childcare system where childcare workers are right now the lowest paid profession in the United States. Childcare workers need, um, need to be unionized, like the public schools. They need to have uh, good working conditions and it needs to be properly funded. The only way that's going to happen, it's not going to happen by forcing parents to pay more. They can't pay any more. It's going to happen by taxing the rich. So those are the kind of things that we need to be looking at.
0: Another unhelpful argument for abortion that you mentioned is abortion is a matter between a woman and her doctor. Legislatures should not intervene. You explain this assumes women have a doctor as opposed to a string of one-time encounters with various medical personnel. Is this a classist argument? Does it reveal elitism and privilege of those supporting reform and not supporting abortion law repeal?
3: I think it does sort of have that that um, lady bountiful medical uh, medicalization eye uh, that that really makes people th- rather than thinking of um, you know the the constituency for the abortion struggle is really the masses of women who want reproductive freedom. And all of these arguments about the rights of professionals to practice and whatnot are really aimed at this sort of lobbying and litigation strategy towards abortion. Um, Now, we think that the lobbying and litigation strategy towards abortion is the correct one because we've been lied to about the history of how we want abortion. So, We just hear, oh, the Supreme Court gave it to us, so it must have been a smart legal strategy. But in reality, it was masses of women revolting in the streets, getting illegal abortions, doing their own abortions publicly, breaking the laws openly, um, all of these things that were happening. And they they were also suing um, on behalf of women, not on behalf of doctors' ability to practice. Um, And so all of that uh, you know, made a firestorm. The other thing that we should note, and one of the reasons it's going to be harder this time around to, to protect our rights is that throughout, um, throughout Eastern Europe and, and the socialist bloc and every, pretty much every socialist country that had a revolution made abortion legal immediately. Um, so we were in a situation in the sixties and seventies where, you know, this debate about what the free world versus what was the, what, System really represented freedom, um, and so this people came from the free world in the United States and went behind the Iron Curtain in Poland to get an abortion for ten dollars, um, and came back. That was extremely embarrassing to the United States. So there was some leverage there, you know. Oh, we're supposedly the free world, but women are, you know walking around on the corners in, in Washington, D.C., each with a different colored scarf, waiting to be picked up and blindfolded to go to their, uh, you know, their underground abortion provider who who may not even be somebody who um, was going to do a safe abortion. So, I mean, this, this whole debate around this um, was helped by the socialist world saying, absolutely, women have this right. And um, here, you know... We, we did not have it. So I think that, that also needs to be kept in mind.
0: Just a couple more questions for you, Jenny. You write, because the reform proposals helped few women, there was no mass movement to push for them. The women's liberation movement was the mass movement that was needed for a breakthrough. And after it arose, victories came in quick succession. In your opinion, can today's Democratic Party and its National Committee learn something from the women's liberation movement in that asking for reforms is not energizing but demanding real change is very popular? And to you, why do, why do the conservatives, why does the right, the Republican Party, get the political value in offering transformative change? But all the Democrats think of is a winning strategy of reforms.
3: Well, it's largely because the, the Democratic the establishment parts of the democratic party and their donors, um, don't really want those changes, right. They don't really want a national healthcare system cause they have a lot of insurance company donors. So, you know, it looks like wimpiness or not understanding the history, but in many cases it's just their interests conflict with the, with the big demand. Um, but it's funny, you know, I mean, they, they also probably don't realize how important the movement is. And, you know, Hillary Clinton and her book, uh, what happened after after the election she she says huh i didn't realize that these things were really popular you know it maybe maybe we should go for big big demands instead of you know a blizzard of acronyms and little dispensations to people who can qualify you know uh, so maybe she had an epiphany maybe she was just playing to her audience but um i think it's pretty obvious at this point that that you know, going for the public option is not going to unite all the people that need health care. Having health care for everybody, everybody in the country is what's going to unite people who need health care. And, and similarly on all of these other, uh, all of these other issues like abortion, we only have abortion for people who have been raped or or victims of incest or have cancer. That leaves out most people who need abortions. It's not something they're going to rally around. This was we learned that in the 60s and we need to relearn it when we, uh, you know, we're backing down on 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 some of these things and just only talking about the hard cases. We need to talk about the normal cases where most people are.
0: And whenever I hear the word epiphany, I remind myself. That the word phony comes from it. I just love that piece of trivia. We have been speaking with writer, teacher, and organizer with the feminist group National Women's Liberation, Jenny Brown, author of a new book, Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now. Jenny was a leader in the fight to get the morning-after pill over the counter in the U.S. and a plaintiff in the winning lawsuit. Previously, Jenny wrote or co-authored the Red Stockings book, Women's Liberation and National Health Care, Confronting the Myth of America, and authored Birth Strike, The Hidden Fight for Over Women's Work which you can find out more about at birthstrike.home.blog One last question for you, Jenny and as we do with all of our guests our final question is the question from hell the question we hate to ask you might hate to answer or our audience will hate your response So I was trying to find a poll any poll online where it would say how what the percentage of American women was or is that supports abortion. I could not find any Pew poll that was gendered when it came to abortion. I I mean, I didn't do that much research, so maybe I missed it, but I could not find any polls anywhere that would suggest, you know, 98% of men are against against abortion and 98% of women are for abortion or whatever the case was. That was the information I was trying to find. I could not find that. But what I did find was something even... Even more weird. Uh, When looking to poll numbers that were fascinating over the last 10 years, support for a woman's right to an abortion with limits has been in around the 55 percent range over the last 10 years. Support for abortion being legal under any circumstance has been under 25, around 25 percent, while opposition to all forms of abortion for any reason whatsoever has been around 20 percent, the lowest of those three categories. In other words, Four out of five respondents generally say they believe there should be uh, some or no limits on abortion, while another one in five is completely opposed to a a woman's right to choose. Yet in those same polls over the same last 10 years, half of respondents considered themselves pro-choice and half said they were pro-life. What explains why only one in five respondents being against abortion yet consider themselves pro-life? how How is it that you have you can come across this idea of eighty percent of Americans either believing women should have no limits on their abortion or a few limits on their abortion yet fifty percent of Americans say they're pro-life
3: well, partly it's when you poll people they want to express disapproval um of abortion, and so they do it. And that's why polling on abortion is not as good as ref- as looking at referendum results on abortion. Um, generally when refer, when referenda are put on the ballot in States in the United States, um, not always, but generally uh, the pro-choice, the pro-abortion side wins. Um, and that's partly because people, you know, in the poll, they just want to say it's a bad thing, um, but they don't necessarily want to bring the law down on somebody. Cause they understand what that means. Um, now, there's one exception and that is with, uh, with young folks, uh, having to get, uh, parental permission, usually those pass. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the thing is that there are a lot of different, uh, there, the polls always ask, well, what about a case of rape? What about a case where the person has cancer? So people sort of self sort themselves into, into pro-choice or pro-life, using those the terms that are the media uses, um, based on how much they think it's a bad thing that people get abortions, or how much they think it's a good thing that people can get abortions. Um, so I, but I think when you when you basically look at do people want abortion outlawed? No, absolutely not. About seventy-five percent think it should not be outlawed. So that's kind of the bottom line on polling. Um, I don't think we should spend a lot of time looking at polls. The polls were extremely close in Ireland, and yet they won by sixty-six percent um, repeal of their abortion law. So um, that you know that indicates to me that the the polls are are really kind of useless in this fight. And the other thing that's useless about the polls is that. When we start talking about abortion, really talking to people, as they did in Ireland, they went door to door, sometimes several times they would visit the same person who was undecided. Um, As we do that, we change minds. And that's what happened in the late 60s and early 70s. The women's liberation movement changed people's minds about abortion. Look, we went from a period where abortion was illegal unless you were about to die in most states to... uh, you could get an abortion if you wanted one up to 23 weeks. I mean, that, that change <laughs> was made by a movement talking about abortion um, and obviously organizing for it. So we don't have to go with what the polls say. We can like, make our own reality on this one by getting out there and talking about abortion.
0: Yeah, and it just reminds me that, uh, or actually you enlighten me, uh, that poll-obsessed media in politics won't ever lead to any real transformation. Jenny, I really appreciate you being on our show today. Uh, Jenny Brown is the author of the new book, Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle now, and you can follow Jenny on Twitter at JennyBrownLN, and Jenny, when this book comes out in a new edition, or you have any writing out whatsoever, you have an open invitation to being on our show whenever you'd like. Thank you so much. This is a fantastic book, and I really, really enjoyed our conversation today.
3: Great. Thanks so much. I did, too.
0: All right. Take care. The kind of stuff that starts fights at the dinner table, this is hell, and if a- conversation on abortion doesn't start a fight at your Thanksgiving table, then you're having a wrong Thanksgiving. Let's go back to the uh, listener feedback just for a couple minutes. I wanted to finish up a couple of emails we got. Calvin emailed us at at chuckatthisishell.com in reference to our interview with Adam Kotzko on Evangelicals. Calvin says, I want to drop a quick note to suggest that you look into Tad DeLay's book, especially his new work, Against What Does the White Evangelical Want, DeLay's psychoanalytic approach to and personal experience with the evangelical movement yields some rather hellish insights into the evangelical mind and the future they want or don't want. And I think Alex has some news about Todd DeLay possibly being on our show, Tad, I should say. Alex?
1: Uh, yeah, I got a book for Wednesday, next Wednesday.
0: So see, Calvin, you may make a suggestion, and we take care of it. Our listeners are the best, and we always want to fulfill your wishes. Calvin continues, completely unrelated to that topic. I recently read... Uh, Intan Suwandi's article from the July-August issue of Monthly Review, Labor Value Commodity Chains, and thinks she would make a great guest. As it turns out, the article is just a short sampling of an entire book, Value Chains, the New Economic Imperialism, on the subject of not only how dependent the global north is on the exploitation of the global south for its continued profitability, but what that exploitation looks like within the global economy and how it takes place. As always, thanks for all the hell lately. Hope you're enjoying and adjusting to your new schedule, Best Calvin. It's definitely been a struggle to adjust, Calvin, and thanks for the kind words. And as I was saying earlier, my new hell is an impacted wisdom tooth I was told had been pulled by my orthodontist when I was a kid. That is apparently impacted and is beginning to erupt, which means I may be facing emergency dental surgery in the next 24 hours, so I got that going for me. Assuming I survived that surgery, Calvin, we will definitely pursue both your guest suggestions. We've already booked Ted, because what other show is going to have conversations about hellish topics like evangelicalism and value chains? And why hasn't some disgusting entrepreneur come up with the idea of selling ostentatious, gigantic gold chains that hang low within all caps the word value? Come on, greedy greedy capitalists. Start selling literal, actual value chains finally in the listener feedback this week James writes with a request hi we recently launched a new daily podcast about the 2020 elections called election ride home and are getting the word out would love to find out about advertising opportunities on this is hell thanks James sorry James we do not take any advertising money never have never will unless it's a lot of advertising money I mean sure we're tempted to sell out like everybody, but we're not a cheap date. And I seriously doubt a podcast has deep pockets. I should know our podcast pockets have holes in them, which explains why we're always broke. That's why we depend on you, our listening audience, to support us via Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell so we never have to get advertisers who would certainly create conflicts of interest for us and not make us the relatively... Trustworthy show that we are That means if you like what you hear on This is Hell and want it to continue Either subscribe at patreon.com Slash this is hell or go to ThisIsHell.com And click on support and find all the ways You can support this is hell That's listener feedback if you want to contact us And possibly have your email read on air Email us at chuck at this is hell.com Message us via facebook and facebook.com Slash this is hell radio And we really gotta catch up on all our Facebook messages we've received so, tune in for the next few weeks as we are doing that, or you can direct message us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. Coming up on this week's show, we'll get an update on the fight for the struggle to repeal. Oh, no, we already did that. Uh, da, 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 da. Oh, we'll discover how Norway is a primary agent of climate change, and we'll get a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth Radio Show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Alex, who is on tomorrow's show?
1: Uh, I'm talking with him on Skype right now, Henrik Olav Mathias, will be on to talk about his big, uh, big piece in uh, Dark Mountain for the Dark Mountain Project on Equinor, uh, Norway's natural gas giant.
0: You want to hear a really weird thing on the way home from uh, going to my niece's community play in northern Michigan, turned on the radio, and there was a big story about how Equinor is the company that's supplying the 100-foot-long, apparently, I think maybe even bigger, uh, blades for the wind farm off of the coast of England, so they're already trying to get into the clean energy market because they're trying to diversify because they know that their bottom line is in danger with all of the fossil fuel being that they uh, make money off of being probably limited in the near future, or at least let's hope they are. Live from the Nightmare of Want, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. There is only one way to get over all, all the problems that we've introduced to you on this morning's show, this afternoon's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My
2: demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a Uh sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.